two short scriptures. They're not the ones that I've given you, by the way. So don't put those ones up. I'm still going to preach from that passage, but I'm just... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And as we go on through that passage, that phraseology repeats itself again and again and again. And God said, let there be, and it was so. From chaos and nothingness to creation in its entirety. With the culmination of that, the formation of man, who he made in his image, male and female, he created them. He gave them purpose and direction for their life. And he gave them authority to exercise that direction. But the picture here is of a, not a puny God, but an almighty God. In another place in scripture, it talks about how God holds all the seas of the world in his hand. Again, not a puny God, a majestic and magnificent God. In some of the songs that we sing, even the ones that cause controversy like a hundred billion love songs or whatever they call it, it says in there, there is a phrase in there that I love as I, I, I listen sometimes to that song about him throwing the stars into space. And we know from our simple human understanding, even those scientists which are seriously clued in in their brain, that there are millions of galaxies of stars in the universe. Not a puny God, an awesome God, a powerful God. In Isaiah, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered the face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. No wonder that Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We've been slowly making our way through Romans, <coughs> and I may well give Romans a rest after next week, <coughs> just 
for a few weeks for you, just so you can have a breather. But in chapter 9, which I spoke about a few weeks ago, or began to speak about a few weeks ago, I told you that in the beginning of this chapter on my Bible, it's the um, English Standard Version, it's entitled God's Sovereign Choice. And really what I think that Paul is portraying to us in this passage is the awesomeness and the majesty and the power and the omniscience and omnipotence of God. And his right to make decisions about how his universe is conducted. There are things in here, pictures that are given that are trying to help us in some way understand the balance between God's sovereignty and our personal responsibility. And you might remember that I shared with you how at Bible college I used to love the debates that took place and we'd argue about how many angels stood on the head of a pin. That's a joke, by the way, but you know what I mean. That sort of thing. We never came to full conclusions, but what we did know by the end of them was who believed what. Because they were usually stood on one side of the room and the other. And I said to you that sometimes when we look at great themes in the Bible... It's a bit like, for me, my Christmas dinner where I love everything on the plate except Brussels sprouts. And so, by my choice, I leave Brussels sprouts off if I'm asked. If they're put on, I push them to the side of my plate and I don't care how you cook them, how you present them. I wouldn't care whether you pulled sherry over them or anything. It makes no difference. I don't like Brussels sprouts. But what that is, it doesn't mean that Brussels sprouts aren't good for me. Because Brussels sprouts contain antioxidants, you know, and other good things for our bodies. But I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I choose to leave them on the side. And I want to say, sometimes when we struggle in our health, I wonder sometimes if it's because we don't like things. They're not so palatable as others, we just leave them aside. Whereas if we ate them, maybe we wouldn't be in better shape. If I didn't spend so much time with chips and Chinese and Indian curry and all the rest of it, maybe I'd have a better body and health. Anyway, sovereignty of God is a theme in Scripture that on the one hand is absolutely mind-blowing. Sarah's picture about how she sits and sees the sun come up every morning and what that elicits in her about how wonderful God is and that sun rises all over the world at different times. There are things about the sovereignty of God which should really, really, really excite us. The sovereignty of God means that I know that God's purposes will be fulfilled. So when he speaks into my life, he who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. No matter how the travel on the way goes, he will bring it to where it is meant to be. 
when things go wrong in the world, and let's be honest, right now there are lots of things going wrong in the world, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, then there is fear and trembling. And yet when you believe that God is sovereign, whilst those things are still unpleasant and they will still bother us and may even trouble us, when we believe in the sovereignty of God, we know that he will achieve his purposes. And therefore, we need not fear. We don't have to fear. We don't necessarily have to be anxious. And so right at the outset this morning, whatever else I say, the one thing I want you to take away is that I'm declaring I believe 100% in the sovereignty of God to do what he wills to do, bringing about his purposes. There are no caveats. If God chooses to do things that I don't like, it matters not, because he is God. And I am his creation. In a few moments, we will look just briefly at the, a bit later in chapter 9 where he talks about the potter and the clay. Who is the clay, basically, to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? You know, in, for, in terms of, you know, he makes some things which get used for ennoble purposes and some things which are for glorious purposes. Who are we to say to him, you have no right to do this? We don't. If we genuinely believe in the awesomeness, the majesty and the power of God, we do not have the right to argue with our creator. So please, if nothing else, go away with that as the thought and I will share with you some other little bits that I have been wrestling with for at least three weeks. In fact, probably slightly longer than that before I came to actually speak on this passage. So I've mentioned to you that Paul is in anguish. He tells us that at the beginning of chapter 9. It's his Jewish brothers and sisters. He is in anguish for them because... At one level, you might want to say that they have a, an advantage over everyone else because they'd been given so much. They had been chosen by God. They were God's people, after all. They had the temple. They had the law. They had the promises that God had made to them. And so, at one level, you think that they'd have an unfair advantage, and yet Paul, at the beginning of this passage of chapter 9, he talks about being in anguish for them, to the point he was even willing to take their place and be damned in their place if that were possible, he says, which seems a strange statement to make. But what we find out of that is that despite the advantage that they seemingly had, they were wrestling with an issue which they didn't understand because you see, when you come from a place where you think that it's okay and you're okay, 
then when you start to hear something different from someone who is like yourself, in this case, Paul was a, a Pharisee, a Jew, a teacher of the law. He, he started to say things to them that he had not heard or that they had not heard particularly before. And so they had a series of questions which flowed out of this discussion that has been going on throughout Romans. And Paul is going to seek to answer these questions. Now these questions may be questions that you've asked yourself. Or they may be questions that you have been asked if you've ever tried to share your faith with someone. You may have just been in a discussion with someone not even trying to share your faith and it comes round to spirituality and about Christianity. Which way is it to God? How do we get to God? And you may have heard these questions mentioned. So one of those things is, has God failed? In verse 6, Paul begins by saying, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He is going to answer a question which seems to suggest that he was being asked, basically, God's word in the past then, what we've always known, has that failed in some way? And in answering that question, he picks up on a theme I once saw a sketch done in a church that I led in Whitley Bay by someone from Youth for Christ. And it's only really the punchline that I can remember. Well, I can remember the actions. All of a sudden, he stood to speak at the front. He was speaking that day and he suddenly launched off, running around the room with his arms out doing this, you know, making the sound of a jet fighter going round, you know. I had no warning And I sat there thinking, what do I do now? Do I call him to account and tell him to stop it? Then he came back to the front and he started making sounds like a car. And then he asked people a question. He said, if I run around the room and pretend to be an aeroplane, does that make me an aeroplane? No. If I live in a garage, does that make me a car? The answer was obviously... No. The point he was trying to make for me was just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. If you're born into a Christian family, does that make you a Christian? No. If you're born into a nation that says that they are a Christian nation, Does that make you a Christian, a follower of Jesus? No. And when they're asking this question to Paul about has God's word, has his promises failed then in some way, the reality is there were lots of Jews responding to the message and yet at the same time having this wrestle going on with themselves. But I thought that we were already God's. I thought we were in. And Paul, using the patriarchs, starts to explain to them, it isn't you being 
a literal son of Abraham that makes you in. You've got to be a child of promise. And so we read, you know, and not all the children of Abraham, uh, sorry, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be should shout your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that accounted as his offspring. Now for us, I do hear people say why they feel that God should accept them. I go to church every week. I enjoy church, you know, I love the songs, I enjoy joining in. The preaching leaves a bit to be desired, but other than that, the songs aren't so bad. And if we could make him shorter, it would be all the better. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. I've heard people actually say, well, I'm a Christian, I was born in the United Kingdom and we're a Christian nation. Well... That is not the case. I've even heard people who were brought up in Christian homes believe that they are Christians because they were born into a Christian home, which for me personally is sad because it means the gospel from the parents has never been shared with the child or the children or even the adults when they become adults growing up. And so the question is, has God's word failed? No, it hasn't. But you have to be a child of promise. And then he goes on and he uses another illustration and it's one that causes people a lot of consternation. He uses this illustration of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And so many people get concerned. They're happy and they love God and they're all right about the power of his sovereignty and everything else. And then they come across this verse and they panic and they think, whoa, hold on a minute. How can I be sure that I'm one of the loved and not the hated? Because they automatically assume that this illustration is there saying that God is destining one to one thing and the other to something else in terms of an individual. And the truth is that in this passage and other passages in Scripture... We are not looking at those individuals per se, but we're looking at what they represent. And so you get, it said in Malachi 1, 2 and 3, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is it not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and his heritage to jackals in the desert. I do not believe one moment that the hatred here and the love here, the words that are being used are to be considered like we consider human love and hate. This is simply highlighting the route by which God has chosen to establish his purposes. If you go all the way back into Genesis, 
you will find that he is talking, and into the prophets, you will find that he is talking about nations rather than individuals. And there is a choice that God makes in the accomplishment of his purposes and through whom he will work. You see, if you read 1 John 4, 8, it says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Therefore, I know that some people will say it's a righteous hatred, but I think that is stretching the point a little bit too far. God is love. And how can he deny himself then by hating? I don't think he can. And therefore, what we have here, I think, is a way of describing how God has made a choice. And so, we know God loved Abraham. Don't we? And yet, he didn't choose at one sense... That, I suppose, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and the rest of the crew, they flowed from him at, uh, in reality. But you could say that, um, let me get it, I want to read it to you rather than state it. It sounded good when I adjusted it last night. <laughs> I was going to say, the easiest way of showing this is to consider Abraham chosen by God through whom the world would be blessed Was Abraham the only man in the world at the time? No, he wasn't. Therefore, you might be able to say, God loved Abraham and hated every other man in the world because he chose Abraham. You could say it about the nation of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel, not because of their greatness, but because he loved them. But you could say in choosing them to be the vehicle through whom Jesus came, he hated everybody else. And yet we know that scripture tells us that God loves the world. God wants no individual to be lost. Now we can't just take little bits of the Bible and make a complete doctrine out of them. We have to somehow bring some balance. And so I think here that what is being shown is God has chosen to act in a particular way through the child of promise. And that is the issue. That is the issue. The child of promise came because of faith. Nothing else because of faith, because Abraham's body was dead or as good as dead and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. For them to have a son meant that they had to believe God. And you know it says in scripture, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And therefore, what Paul is saying is here, it's not how, where you're born, it's not race, it's not nationhood that makes you a child of God. In reality, it is being a child of the promise, one who has put their faith and trust in the living God. Second question, is God unjust? What's the time? Right, thanks, I can see your watch from here. Is God unjust? 
If God makes all the decisions beforehand, then how can we be held accountable for our actions? So you can hide away if you want to. That's what so many people want to do. They want to blame God for the problems in the first place and not accept personal responsibility. And if God decides everything beforehand, so every action that I take is already predetermined by him, then how can he find anything wrong with me, you know? He's got to be unjust. If I, if I apply that, he must be unjust. But I don't believe God is unjust. I don't. Again, he uses an Old Testament, um, not just a character, but a real-life person in the person of Pharaoh to explain why God is not just. And I had never actually looked back into this when, um, until uh, I started looking at this, but if you read the scriptures where Moses is trying to represent God and to get God's people to leave Egypt. He has encounters regularly with Pharaoh. And if you read through that, you will find that, it, that there's different phrases. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. There are a lot of passages that say, or a lot of verses that say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then all of a sudden you find one that says the Lord hardened his heart. And then it goes back to Pharaoh continued to have a hard heart. And then three or four times, I can't remember quite, but three or four times it then goes on and says the Lord hardened his heart. You see, our continual resistance to God hardens our hearts. It hardens our hearts. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of all times, made this statement, or he is quoted as saying this, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. That is exactly what Paul said all the way back in chapter 1. Continual resistance and pushing back against God, failing to surrender our lives to him, failing to go with his plan means that our hearts become hard to the point he gives people over to the direction of travel that they go in. And so, for me, whilst I believe God knows, because he is all-knowing, who will be with him in eternity, and those who won't, that does not mean that is his desire, and it does not mean that the individual is not responsible. They have responded to God every time according to the desires of their heart. And so is God unjust? No, I don't think he is. I think he is set in place how people will need to be to come to him by putting their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That's 
Paul's message for me. That is what you need to do. We're all sinners. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. You've got for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us who have not fallen short of God's glory. And yet there will be some of us where the beautiful sunshine of him melts us where others will reject him. That is our personal response to him. And yet, what is it we do? When we have a beef with God, we turn around and we say, God isn't fair. God is unjust. People use those excuses to remain aloof from God, not to come towards him. And so that is a question. And the final question that I'm going to look at today is about um, fault. Over the page... Oh, in my Bible, it's over the page, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And it's there that he uses the illustration of the potter. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then it goes on, quoting from Hosea. I think, for me, I genuinely think, for me, that God, in that Potter illustration, I was going to ask Karen, Pete's wife, Pete and Karen are new to us, but I did think about asking Karen to bring a portable Um, wheel today and actually throw a pot here in front of us Um, but I really believe that we have no right and we have to understand even if God was to make pots in order for destruction or for ennoble purposes then he has the right to do that anyway And that's something we would just have to learn to accept. And if he makes some for noble purposes, then that's his right anyway. And we need to learn to accept that. And it is probably the most powerful illustration of God's sovereignty. God sat at a potter's wheel throwing a piece of clay. And whilst there are times when we pick up scripture and we want to make it one way, I sometimes ask the question, why do we do that? Is it to allow us to have a beef with God about something? 
God is sovereign. If he wanted to basically say, away from me, as he, might, as he could, you know, you, you read in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? The sheep and the goats, they come before him. Well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Depart from me. There will be a final judgment. The sovereignty of God and judgment and even wrath in that sense where God would make that final judgment on an individual, the reality for me is that he would be unjust if he didn't punish sin as much as he would be unjust if he literally decided before you started, you were going to hell. The illustration I thought of, two actually, but this one. Any of you have watched any documentaries or films on the Second World War and you've watched and seen where the Jewish people were taken to concentration camp and they come off the train and they're walked into the camp and as they walk into the camp very often there is someone there that just says to one person that way and that person you go that way and they make that decision you know it's quite harrowing when you think about that because it's totally arbitrary some children survive some die one woman lives, another dies. And one man is taken because he might be useful or he's strong. He looks healthy. And somebody who's another man who might not be quite so strong and healthy is pushed to one side. But God isn't like that because God is just. And when he makes his final decision, enter into your rest, depart from me. He will make a just decision at that point based on the way in which we have lived and we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. What can we say about God's sovereignty in the Christian life? So knowing God, that God is sovereign, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and we, it should give us that sense of security. Because we know that he is in control. But what about suffering, you might ask me? And now, talking about suffering is, a, is another sermon or two. But I thought about that last night, late. And you know, in some strange way, God's sovereignty dignifies suffering in a strange sort of way. Because so often, the thing that abhors us about suffering is its senselessness. It doesn't seem that it's got any sense to it. And yet, if God is truly in control, and ultimately his purposes will be made known, you could say that suffering is dignified through God's sovereignty. 
The reality is, as I've, I've, I've wrestled quite a lot with this passage of scripture, and there would be times where I would be like, you know, gung-ho, pin my colours to the mast. But I've really wrestled with this. But I affirm two things. God is sovereign. Three, actually. God is sovereign. We have personal responsibility for how we respond to him. And the fact that God loves every individual, there are not those he does not love from the day of their creation. He loves every individual and wants everyone to be saved. Everyone to come to know him as their father. They are the things that I can affirm. Whether I communicate them well or not, I can definitely affirm those three things. God loves us. God is sovereign. I can't remember the third one now because I've gone back into a, a list that I was. What was the third one? Anybody? Eh? Personal. I can't remember. The, the phrase I used has gone out of my head. Don't worry about it. If you want to know it, listen to the, t the recording. So that's that. So this morning... We, there was this thing I had, this, and you heard Gary stand up. It's about that doorway. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. God won't kick the door down, but you have the opportunity to open it. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, there are times where, Lord, we, we really want to get a handle on those things and we love one side of the coin, Father, about your all-powerfulness, the fact that you've got all things in control. And yet when we flip the coin, Lord, there are things on the other side we wrestle with and struggle with and Father, we are not infinite like you. We're not all-knowing like you. We see very darkly most of the time. But Lord God, the one thing we know about you is that you are a God who loves us all. There is not one of us you wish to perish, to spend eternity away from you in hell. And we know that you're sovereign and we know that you're just. And we know that when you judge, it will be right judgment. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to your sovereignty. Regardless of how difficult we find one side of the coin over the other. And Lord, we want to walk with you, grow in you. And Lord, we want to know you more. Lord, I want to thank you that you are not just this awesome, all-powerful God out there, but you're also intimate and you have that desire 
for intimacy with us as your people. Lord God, help us hold the tension between the two that our intimacy doesn't become dishonouring to you because you're our mate as so many people like to think of you because you're not. You're a father, an authority figure. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us hold that tension of your awesomeness and your closeness, your sovereignty and our responsibility, that we won't look to blame you, but rather to follow you. And what we don't understand, we just carry trusting you for who you are. So, Lord God, I just ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.